But if you're there because you want to fight war at the tip of the spear and you want to be thrown into the hardest, most arduous tasks possible, then you're in the unit for the right reasons. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Got children. Yeah, yeah, going to a I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top like the like She did say, you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Nick Caldwell is a former Special Forces soldier. After time in the commandos, he passed selection for the Special Air Service Regiment. The SAS veteran spoke to Thomas Kay in a reflective conversation about mindset, growth, and what it takes to serve your country at the tip of the spear. Hi, I'm Thomas Kay, and today I'm joined by Nick Caldwell. Nick, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. To start off, tell us about your childhood where everything began. So I grew up in Brisbane and uh, about the age of 10, we moved out to a rural area just north of Brisbane. At that stage, it was rural. Right now, it's fully developed. It uh, looks like an yeah, yeah, average suburb. But back then, it was pineapple farms for as far as you could see. So I grew up basically surrounded by pineapples. My dad was a, a licensed aircraft main engineer for Australian Airlines at the time. So we had a hobby farm out there. But we effectively, we farmed all our own meat we farmed a lot of the food we ate. A lot of my early jobs were on the surrounding farms, either building stock fences or picking pineapples or weeding farmlots and things like that. So I guess you say I'd probably identify more with being a farm boy growing up on a farm than anything else. And uh, I'd also learned to shoot and drive from a very early age. So I think, I, in fact, I probably learned to drive and shoot by about 12 or something like that. I was trusted with a shotgun and a rifle when I was that age. And I was trusted to go out on my own and go sh- shoot animals. Like uh, we'd shoot our own ducks, we'd shoot rabbits, we'd shoot some of the vermin, some of the foxes. We wouldn't indiscriminately kill. We were very measured. And my father taught me to be very measured about how we used our firearms. But I grew up with that familiarity from a very young age. From there, yeah, I think the Army for me was a natural progression. So a lot of my um, readings as a child, a lot of the movies that I liked watching, uh, a lot of the influences that shaped my view of the world were from the military. And no one in my family was in the military. I think uh, maybe my grandfather's cousin flew in the Air Force in World War II. But after that, there was no one until me and our family. So effectively, the movies and the way you grew up was what steered you and grew your interest in joining the armed forces? Yeah, I I think the other thing was that the ability or the potential to continue to live that life of adventure, the potential to continue to to shoot, to drive, to be outside, to camp, to make campfires, you know, not necessarily looking up the livestock, but, you know, getting your hands dirty, getting out there in the middle of of the bush was something that appealed to me. If there was a job that allowed me to do that, then that was going to be the job that I'd aim for. And so it played out that way as well, you know, riding motorbikes, driving cars, driving four-wheel drives, all those sorts of things is what we did in the Army effectively. What did your family think when you said, you know, I've just signed up or I'm going to sign up? Well, there was mixed emotions. I think 
I think that for a lot of my dad's generation potentially because there was nothing, there was no reference point since Vietnam. So I think the stigma was that veterans were older guys and people in the army were old guys. And if you're going to join the army, you would, when there's nothing going on, it's potentially is the last our last option you had but for me it was the first option so they tried to encourage me to go to university they tried to encourage me to do all these different stuff before i made the move to join the army potentially hoping that i'd go down another career path but it was always in the back of my head it was always going to be there and the first opportunity i got to go and join the army i took it that being said i would have joined the army a lot earlier but you still had to wait for your parents to sign off at that stage so i got in as soon as i could so you wanted to join the army while you were young growing up what went I know where I want to go, special forces, and just have your target set on that. Yeah. Um, I think from a 10-year-old, naively speaking, it was uh, the commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger. That was the first thing that, that gave me the awareness that there were special forces out there and gave me an, a slight, more or less, an understanding of that is the path I wanted to go down, even if it wasn't a realistic depiction of what the actual life of a, a special forces soldier was like. But that put me on that path. And so I consumed and read everything I could about, you know, the formation of the 22nd SAS in the World War II, Borneo, um, Sarawak, Vietnam, Australian SAS in Vietnam. And I continued to find as much information out there as I could to read and to get more of an understanding of that sort of life. And the more I read, the more I investigated it, the more I was convinced that that was the life that I wanted to pursue. And then I think it was in uh, Bravo 2 Zero written by Andy McNabb. When that book came out, that sort of sealed the deal for me. So that was like, and the one that got away by Chris Ryan. Those two books sealed the deal. And when you think about it, that mission effectively was a failure. But the story it told about the soldiers who were a part of that patrol and how they fought through the circumstances to make the best of the situation, and, you know, some didn't make it out of that situation, that really enamoured me with that mindset and with that uh, philosophy and with that mythology that we will put everything on the line for something that we believe in. And to know that there was an organisation out there that, that lived those ideals was what really appealed to me. So run us through what was it like once you actually first joined the military? And this is all before, you know, attempting special forces and going for that. What was it like just the first initial once you got your foot in the door and you're, you're there where you wanted to go? So I joined to the reserves. So I would have, would have gone full time earlier. But I joined through the reserves. And when I got in, I, I, I did my first course. So I think it was the IET course. And to me, I, it was like, yeah, this is it. This is, this is the culmination of everything I thought about. This is, even though it was an IT course, it was the most basic level of training for an infantryman. To me, it was where it's at. This was me on the path towards where I wanted to be. It made sense from all angles. It made sense on all levels. And the way they conducted the training, I loved everything about it, really. I loved the way they conducted the training. I loved the mentors or the, the staff that you were surrounded by. It was just, for me, a huge learning curve. It was, for me, it was, it was completely different to the life I'd grown up with. And to be exposed to it reinforced that this is the life I wanted to live. You put yourself to the test by going for the Special Forces selection. This was for four RAR commando, which had just recently been re-rolled to a commando unit. You only get snippets of information about what the training is going to be like. And... Uh, you're trying to get as much information as you can prior to embarking on it. But to that point, I hadn't known anyone who had been an ex-Special Forces soldier. I hadn't known anyone who could speak with any level of authority in terms of what it was going to be like. So for me, it was very much a case of suck and see. The commando selection course I did then was the first 10 days of the SAS selection course. 
So those who were nominated to go to 4 hour Commando, they were to do the first 10 days, and then after 10 days they would go on with the rest of the Rio cycle if they were successful after those 10 days. And the rest of the Rio cycle, obviously, they went on to, uh, those who passed went on to the Rio cycle for selection, for uh, SAS, sorry. That process, I think knowing that that was the um, first 10 days of the Carter course was gave me a lot of confidence. You know, I felt that I wasn't experienced enough to undertake the Carter course. I just felt I didn't have enough time in the battalion and enough experience at that point to do because I was reservist when I did when I did selection for the commandos. After those first 10 days, I knew that you know I had a good chance if I trained well enough, if I had my headspace in the right spot, then uh, I would be prepared to uh, do the full 21 days. Once you passed all that, you're in special forces, and then you went into the special forces reinforcement cycle. Can you remember us what all that involves? It's a very well measured process, and I think it's getting better and better as the years go by. I mean, we were at that time, you know, it was the late 90s. We were the, that that course was the product of 50 years worth of evolution of, of selecting and training individuals for those units. The DS and the staff in that course were majority uh, long-term serving Australian Special Forces soldiers, Australian Special Air Service and First Commander Regiment, or both. We were the benefit of everything that had gone on from Z Special Forces all the way through, all those trainings, all those learnings. We had the benefit of that, not necessarily the experience, but definitely the learnings and the TMPs and those sorts of things. And I think that process is getting better and better, you know, especially with the advent of the last you know, 15, 20 years of, of action and the lessons that we've learned from those situations. You got to go on deployment to Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan, but in that time between, what was your rough timeline and what did that consist of? My first trip uh, was in 2001, so it's pretty widely known that 4RER Commando was deployed to East Timor in 2001. We did a six-month deployment there, and that was basically an infantry battalion task. Uh, which is fine. I mean, any operation for me at that stage was an operation and I, and I loved it. I was in a sniper recon platoon at that point and I was very lucky to be in that platoon actually because at that stage we were surrounded by probably some of the best soldiers in the battalion and there were former Special Air Service guys in those patrols as well. So for me that was a, a real good learning ground for what I wanted to undertake next, which was Special Forces Selection. Now, it was relatively uneventful, but still for me, a pretty interesting. It was a great trip, really. Uh, I loved everything about it, but it really prepared me for the next stage, which was taking on the Carter course in uh, 2002. Throughout this time, did you climb any ranks? No. So was, I got in the unit in uh, 99 and 2001 we deployed. And then 2002, I did selection. So I was there since, well, actually, effectively, I did selection in 98. So I was there for four years. So in terms of being a corporal, corporal, you know, you're looking at four to six years before you go up to the next rank. So wasn't in the unit long enough to achieve another level of rank. So when we got back from East Timor, six months out there, we took some time off. I spent about three months training up for Carter Course. And I think and my, the majority of my patrol were, in fact, going to do the Carter Course at the same time. We all did that in uh, April 2002. How did you find it? Can you give us an idea of what's involved and how tolling it is on you, your mindset and your body? The regiment's very smart in terms of how they select. So they're very smart. They don't have to whip someone to their near death to test someone. What they're looking at is to find those traits they're looking at to be able to see if this is the right person without having to break anyone with any of those uh, common misconceptions there are about the Carter course. I knew that I had to be fit. I knew that I had to, I had no one else to lean on. I had to rely on my whatever tools I had within my own toolbox to face or to overcome whatever obstacles came my way. I knew that that was going to be the case. 
And I knew that I was also going to be put on the back foot from the start and I had to learn to deal with being on the back foot. So that's the basic concept about what I had before I stepped off on the selection course. And I, and I think the even the process of putting the application in and the process of getting on the bus, that is where selection starts. You know, your process of doing all the aptitude testing, doing the interviews, doing the psych assessments, all those sorts of things, that's where selection starts. If you looked at it that way, then there's potentially 500 people who put their paper applications in every year and maybe 160 get to the course and maybe 16 to 20 people pass. So it's quite an attrition rate. And knowing that I got to the next stage after psych and after the aptitude, after all those tests, and then going to the next stage, to me it was like, okay, little win, you know, go to the next stage, another win, go to the next stage, another win. So getting there on the course was a combination of all these processes and all these little victories on the way. And all I need to do is carry that momentum all the way through to hopefully be there at the end of the day. It was arduous, for sure. It was very arduous. Um, you were expected to perform at the best you could possibly be because it was quite a competitive course and there were a lot of lot of really fit, strong individuals on that course. And they always have a limited number of spots that the regiment will take any given year. So you knew you need to be in the top of that, you know, top of the bracket to ensure that you were going to get picked up that year. And, and like I said, they didn't need to absolutely throttle you to test you. They want to see specific reactions or specific outcomes that we achieve specific outcomes depending on the type of tests that they subject you to. And so I would say that both courses were fairly even in terms of how arduous they were, and they were very arduous, but 10 days compared to 21 days, you just can't compare twice as long at least. So you're in that space for twice as long. But by that stage, I had a much better understanding of what it would take to complete 21 days. And so for me, it was, I oh, yes, I had to pass that course. Yes, I needed to be in the mix to get selected. I needed to be there at the end of the day. But I also was looking towards my life in that unit, looking ahead at, okay, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? Because I just thought that I there was no other option. This is for me, this is it. I knew that at that point, I was the fittest, uh, fastest, strongest I, I had ever been in my life to that point. I knew that if I didn't get picked up, I'm not sure how much better I could have done. So I knew that I was also going back to a unit that had been re-rolled to be the counterterrorism unit, uh, one of the counterterrorism units for Australia. So I was going back to a good thing should I fail selection. But in my head, there was no other option than to be there at the end of the day to stand and either get chosen or not get chosen. What would you say is the main thing that helped you survive all the testing? Is it more important to have the body, the strength and you know the physical attributes or the mindset? Uh, it's definitely the mindset. I wasn't by any stretch of the imagination the fittest guy on either the selection courses I did. I'm not a big, well-built guy. I'm not a big guy, 5 foot 10, 85 kilo guy. So average height, average size. But I think the key characteristic of all those who pass the selection course at least is that their mindset will not give them an option to pull off the course. You know, other than a medical pulling off medically, you give yourself no option. If this is the life you want to live and this is the job you want to do and these are the people that you want to do it with, then there is no out. And if you give yourself that out, especially when things get tough, potentially you know, the, the probability of you taking that out is much higher. So in isolation, you can say, no, I'm, not, I'm never going to take, give myself an out. But you really need to be able to say that to yourself when you are the tightest, hungriest, wettest, coldest you've ever been and then still believe that you still do not have an option but to do and to live this life that you want to live.
obviously you've got to keep yourself in physical shape and keep advancing yourself and getting better. What sort of training is there and what does it consist of to keep yourself in the state that you have to be in? Each course is different because there's a whole bunch, there's a whole suite or a whole continuum of courses that you do from the first selection. So selection really is a, is a, um, a test to see how resilient an individual is and also to see how trainable they are. So if we can pick a person who can go, who's fit enough and tough enough and smart enough to go to the next stage, then we need to assess whether we can train them about that they can assimilate the information we need to give them and they can acquire the skills that we need to teach them so that they can go to the next stage. And I think there's gates at every course, really. If you don't pass one particular course, the chances are of getting back squatted or starting the next Rio cycle the following year is, is always on the cards. But there's also a chance that you'll be just deemed not suitable and have to return to your unit. So every single course had that underlying intent. We were basically taught all the basic skills that we needed to know to operate in those particular units. And they were everything from combat survival through to uh, advanced shooting techniques through to insertion methods like uh, stake line or free fall, depending on which unit you're in, mobility ops, first aid, combat first aid, special forces ropings. There's just a whole suite of courses, heavy weapons, whole suite of courses that they just load you with a whole bunch of information. And that's, I guess that's the reason why they want individuals that can assimilate information quickly is because there's so much information there. You can't be expected to be the master of them, but you're expected to be of a high standard in all you got to see some action over in Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan. What was it like you got the notification that you're going to be heading off on deployment? Uh, exciting. I mean, that's what we joined for. I mean, if you do selection or you want to join these units because you want to wear the hat, you're in the regiment for the wrong reasons. But if you're there because you want to fight war at the tip of the spear and you want to be thrown into the hardest, most arduous tasks possible, then you're in the unit for the right reasons. So for me, and for a lot of the guys, in fact, 99.9% of the guys in those two units, that is what we joined for. We had joined to serve at, at that level. And this is before 9-11, you know, this is, this is that, okay, there's nothing going on, but we'd rather be in there because if something goes on, I'm going to be in that unit and we're going to get deployed. And we're going to engage this, probably the most difficult tasks that uh, Australia could ask of us. And we needed to be there. We needed to be there in the mix to, to be able to do that. And after 9-11, obviously everything changed. And I, I remember sitting in Dilly at lunch and everyone's attention was drawn to the TV. And we looked and saw these planes flying to their two towers. And we all knew right then, it is on. This is it. This is everything we had we had dreamt about, effectively. So it's probably a bad way to put it. But this is the realisation of why we were here and for me, it was greater impetus to go to special air service. It can be a bit of a toll, obviously, being at the tip of the spear. You've got all this being requested of you and you're in an active war zone. How taxing is it on your mind to stay in the mindset to put yourself above all of that? And, and is it more so than the body? The mind is primary. It's everything. It leads everything. It'll give up well and truly before your body ever does. Going to conflict being in contact, all these sorts of things, especially in multiple occasions, you become more habitualised to it. You become more used to it. But there's still an underlying tone that you need to manage uh, when you're not in those zones. And for me, it became quite difficult because I make it pretty well known to at least the, the group over here that we train with at the mill is that I actually suffered from and got uh, diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, this was after multiple deployments and it was a culmination of, you know, a million things in my head going on at once. But also, I think the main contributor was that, that case of not learning to manage hypervigilance. There was absolutely no question in my head 
uh, when we were first deployed as to whether why I'm here or what I'm doing here. It was always a case of this is what I wanted to do, this is where I wanted to be. But my off switch, I didn't have an off switch necessarily. So when I came back, I still lived that headspace. You know, I wasn't very good at relaxing. I wasn't very good at, at processing everything we'd seen, everything we'd done. So it sort of culminated to a point where I needed to take some time out. You know, and in fact, it wasn't just a couple of weeks, it was a few months when I needed to take some time out. At that stage, it was fairly common that a lot of guys were, because it was a very, very high tempo. So in terms of operations and in terms of training when you're back in Australia, so there's quite a few guys suffering from high levels of fatigue. And I think uh, some people deal with it better than others. And probably in my case, I needed a little bit more help in dealing with levels of fatigue. Is there anything general that you can give us information about what it's like serving on the front lines as the top of the My first point with the SAS was to Iraq in 2003. Now, that trip is being fairly well documented in a book called The Amazing SAS, which was written by Ian McFedrin. So I can talk in general terms about some of the stuff that we did over there. And I think uh, as far as a special forces operation, that was to me, that was the culmination of everything. Being deep behind enemy lines, being three hours from QRF, being three hours from higher medical care, being effectively on your own as a patrol and setting up an observation post in the middle of nowhere, and then marrying up with your squadron and having a, a squadron of SAS guys roaming the desert, hitting targets after targets. And sometimes you'd be hitting two targets a day, depending on what was going on. That, to me, was the ultimate trip. That was like a brand new SAS soldier who had just finished Rio cycle was posted to one squadron, and then we went into this this operational tempo, which was just like this is this is the dream. This is what I joined, and as soon as I get in this unit, I'm straight away. I'm being deployed. That whole mission was a very successful mission from all angles. When you look at the amount of planning and you look at the amount of redundancy, and you look at the amount of equipment and kit, and how independent we were as a squadron especially in the, in the early days as a patrol, to me it was like it can't get any better than this. And we were lucky enough not to lose anyone and we were very successful in every contact that we were involved in. I think, I think the stats were 43 days, according to the book, were 43 days in Iraq and over 26 contacts. So effectively, squadron was in contact every second day. Granted, they weren't you know, squadron-sized contacts, all of them, but that gives you an idea of how the tempo was during that deployment alone. Everything else I'd done in the unit after that point was I was able to leverage that experience. You know, I was able to leverage the confidence that going on that deployment and that operation gave me. So it was effectively the best, the best thing for me to do just join the unit as a brand new trooper. The contacts that we were involved in during that operation, it was a case of just doing what we'd done in training. It was a case of just rolling with how we had trained, the mindset that we took when we did our training. It was the same mindset we had when we were under fire. It was, it was exactly the same. To me, that old adage, train hard, fight easy, well, that was the way it was. I think our preparation for that operation was harder than the actual operation itself. And I think the benefit of the operation was you had a greater adrenaline push to get you through a lot of the more, a uh, lot of the long hours and the, and the long transits and, long, and, and some of the harder activities, you know. So that was business as usual for us. And to be surrounded by guys, I think, and operate that way was a privilege. To get through some of the tough times and, you know, for various people, it's different forms of releases. Was humour one that you can have and take full advantage of in the Special Forces? All the stuff that you do all the time, there's always an opportunity. There's always a lot of characters there. So there's, uh, there's always something that goes on that will make you laugh or someone will, will be a very, very serious situation and someone will just see an opportunity to drop a joke and uh, it'll just lighten the whole situation and it'll potentially would change a, a mindset or a frame of mind 
which could potentially be changed to something more positive and more um, appropriate to the situation. Humour is a huge part. I wouldn't say I'm the funniest guy in the world, but I was certainly surrounded by some pretty funny guys. From when you started to your end with the Special Forces, did you feel a change to who you were in your time? Yeah. I mean, I think the Army in general, Defence Force as well, but I think the Army in general and Special Forces especially for me was a very much a character building and personal development journey. When I look back at it now, I mean, we started an organisation where we wanted to take a lot of those lessons that we learned throughout that whole process and put into a format where we could teach other people similar lessons and sit and teach them in similar ways that we'd been taught because it was so beneficial to me and my business partners that it made sense to do it. And if we could bottle it and get very close to you know the same effect or the same outcome, then it's worth us doing. It's a very worthy journey for us. So, yeah, I mean, definitely that whole thing. The person I was when I joined the Army as a kid is a different person to who I am now. And I'd say I'm a better person, much better person than I was back then. It's enabled me to manage a lot of a lot of the hardships and especially the transition out of the army. But you know, relationships, business partners, any difficulties that come through life in the civilian sector, the military has very much set me up for managing it. What led you to saying, that's it, I've done my time and effectively leaving the armed forces? I'd always intended to be a reservist, so I'd always intended to be an active reservist when I left the unit. I didn't effectively want to ever leave the unit, but I also knew that there was a, to be a member of both those units, in fact, you had to dedicate your life to it. Uh, So if you were looking at the next stage, and for me the next stage was a family, I didn't think that I would be able to, to balance both. I think that I had to either make the decision to go one or the other, and they effectively are two families. So I chose my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, and I chose our family over that life. It's equally as rewarding, I would say. Probably not as exciting, obviously, but equally as rewarding, and in some cases more rewarding because we've got a daughter now and uh, she's in school and she every day you see her develop and every day you see the influence that you as parents have on her and how important it is and how honourable that task of being a dad and a parent is. To me, it's up there with being a soldier. You know, it's being, you applaud the same uh, training techniques effectively. You know, you're not, you're not beasting your daughter. You're not making them do push-ups, but sometimes you are. But you're using the same methodology because they are tried and tested methodologies that the Army has helped you become who you are. And uh, to me, it's like the next phase and that most logical step. So, yeah, and the short answer is, yeah, I left the, I left the Army because of my family. Two starter families, sorry. Was it an easy transition to go from effectively being overseas, seeing action every two days to going to civilian life uh no it wasn't wasn't easy at all i mean you come from an environment where you are the top dog effectively so wherever we went as a unit we would be deployed because there was a an overriding need for you to be doing something over there which fell within your skill sets and to do that we were usually given every tool we needed and every support and every every bit of infrastructure we needed to do the task when you leave the military you've pretty much got to start from scratch and you've got to build your own infrastructure so that transition for me was took a little bit of adjusting, but at the same time, the military teaches you to be adaptable. And if you don't hone that trait, you cannot learn to apply it in different situations. So we just basically had to adapt the way we thought. We had the knew we had to start from scratch. We knew we were not no longer the top dogs. We knew we had to prove ourselves in the commercial and, and civilian sector. We were quite prepared to do that. We weren't too proud to say we don't know enough. We weren't too proud to go out and, and try and learn what we didn't know. And we did it together, effectively. My wife and some of my business partners, we worked together to make this thing happen. You created the Mill Gym. What led to starting that? 
So I had intended to leave the army and become a builder. So I was going to go back to Queensland and, and uh, go back to Sunshine Coast in Queensland and start a building company with two of my commando mates. So we'd set up a property investment company you know, in 2001, actually, whilst we were overseas in Timor. So we'd been purchasing properties at regular intervals over the preceding few years. So the goal was to set ourselves up, do 10 or 15 years in the army each, and then set ourselves up to leave the army and work for ourselves. Then as soon as I'd left the army, one of my good mates from one of my patrols who I'd done selection with and we both passed carter course with, he asked me to invest in the gym. I said, no worries, I was going to head back to Queensland, but yeah, I'll come and help you out. So we ended up setting up the mill that way. And uh, six operators got involved and we, all six of us chipped in some money and, and we went ahead and, and started up this gym. And I think from the outset, we weren't big on, like I wasn't big on the, the fitness industry per se. And I'm not really a gym guy. I prefer to be surfing or you know, doing jiu-jitsu or something like that. And I, I believed in training for the purposes of being doing something functionally. So we trained, we went to the gym in the military so that we could do our job as operators. And for me, that was the same methodology I had towards training. So I would lift weight to be able to do jiu-jitsu better. I would do more mobility and, and flexibility work so that I could surf better, those sorts of things. So from very much our perspective on the gym was slightly different to what the industry standard was. And we also knew that we had something to contribute outside of just physical training. We knew that we knew enough about developing mental resilience. We knew enough about developing mental toughness that we would try to incorporate that into our training systems. And I think over the last 10 years, we've been reasonably successful with that because we have a very unique perspective on it. And we have the benefit of 50 years of special forces training, the lessons learned from 50 years of special forces training. And we were involved in a lot of the training processes whilst we were in the unit as well. So to us, it made sense to set up a gym that was outside the norm, sort of, sort of like a physical fitness counterculture. And we didn't have an open shop. We didn't let, allow all comers to come in. We wanted to set up something which was very much like the environment we came from where we got to choose our buddies and choose our friends. But we also knew that not everyone was going to fit that mould because not everyone had the experienced preceding selection that we had. So it was going to be very hard for us to, if we wanted to pick two people out of 100, we might get two people 100 that would fit the mould. But as a commercial model, it wasn't very commercial, so to speak. So so we had to, well, we had to change our frame of mind where we had to develop a path for people who at least had an inkling of what they needed to do or what they wanted in terms of resilience. And we had to give them a path and set out a continuum which they could do course or do some sort of process where they could start to develop the resilience that they were looking for. And part of that process is a life of physicality. So it's a life of training people, testing people through physical fitness to get them to that point. And that is effectively what the SAS and, and the commandos do. So aside from the functional training aspect, which you utilised, and obviously the selection criteria, putting a cap on the numbers you had, how would you say it differs from others like CrossFit, for example? That's a good question. So we started the gym just as CrossFit was making its headway in Australia. We didn't know anything about CrossFit effectively. So when we set up the gym, we used, we had a reference point, which was a gym called Jim Jones in the States. Now, Jim Jones is relatively famous for training the uh, actors for the movie 300, which was uh, produced about 10 years ago. Now, they, a guy called Mark Twight started it, and he was, a, he was an outpointer, so he was, a, he was a hardcore mountain climber. And the guy that had approached me to, to invest in the gym, he had trained with Mark. So one of, our, one of my mates had trained with Mark in Utah in Salt Lake City. And that concept that Mark was developing in Jim Jones is very much what he wanted to emulate here in Australia. So I was learning all this from him. But the main differences with CrossFit, what CrossFit was in terms of the competition is that we don't do a lot of the movements that CrossFit do and we don't train for sport, effectively fitness as a sport. We train to make 
mountain climbers better. We train to make housewives fitter, stronger. We're trying to make carpenters give them more energy to do their work more. We're trying to enable soldiers to do their job better. So we didn't effectively train people to compete at training better, if that makes sense. So a lot of the movements in CrossFit, we just think thought we didn't need to do like the handstand walk because as operators, you know, in the worst possible situation that we can think of, which is effectively an ambush, handstand walking is probably the last thing that's going to help us out of that situation. So we wanted to make things more applicable to our craft and our profession and by default making it more applicable to most professions and most crafts and most, most pursuits out there. That being said, I've got a lot of respect for CrossFit. I think it's a great system. I think it's a great program. And I think that it's revolutionised fitness in the world. And it's given it an injection of realism and pragmatism. And I think it's made me change some of my views about the fitness industry in general. But we aren't an affiliate. We don't train people for CrossFit. Um, we never have. Um, we don't profess to say that we're any experts in CrossFit. So looking after you know, one incredible career that's still going on, is there anything that you would have done differently over the years? Uh, yeah, I, I, I probably would have joined the army earlier. <laughs> uh, if, I, if I'd got my parents' signature, I would have. I mean, that's the only thing. Everything that I've done, I mean, I would have. I think the lowest point is chronic fatigue. I think learning to manage that better. And I, and I think that, you know, the reason for the last 10 years, I hadn't done any interviews like this. We hadn't done any podcast or anything like that because we like to be the quiet achievers. We like to, that was the philosophy we've always had. But then I look back at it now and I think that the podcast, like for what you guys are doing right now, if I'd had something like this, you know, 20 years ago, you know, a lot of these lessons that have caused little bumps in the road for people like me, like chronic fatigue and things like that, you'd be more wary of them and you'd also be more aware of how to deal with them potentially as they come up and also post-traumatic growth or post-traumatic stress disorder, all those sorts of things. You know, it's becoming more on the forefront of um, issues at the moment because of podcasts like this and it's demystifying it and also making it more palatable for the public, giving them a better perception of the, what it actually is instead of having perception that they used to have probably 10, 15 years ago. That's changing the mindset. So I think it's really important that guys like me, and I wouldn't say I'm the best soldier in the world. I wouldn't say that you know, I've, got, I've had the best military career in the world. By any stretch, I haven't. But I think that I still have everyone who has been a veteran has something to contribute. And on a platform like this, it is absolutely vital that we do contribute because the young 17-year-old who's considering a life similar to what we have undertaken will hopefully put him two steps ahead of where he was, where he may not have been had he not been had access to information like this. So in terms of what, what, what it would have changed, nothing. Um, I'm very happy with my career. I also think we came through, you know, I joined the Army at a, could be said, a golden era operationally for the Australian Army, Australian Defence Force. I'm very lucky to have been surrounded by the type of guys and girls that I've worked with and the other agencies that we worked with as well, as well as the other countries that we worked with. And I'm very lucky, very fortunate to have served in those countries that I have served in. And I'm also fortunate and thankful that uh, I survived. I'm not injured. I'm, I didn't get wounded or anything like that. And I'm also thankful that I can pay a lot of these lessons forward, one, through this platform, the podcast, and two, through a gym, through a family, and hopefully through things like this and what we can do with our community we can pay it forward as a team, myself and my partners and everyone else involved in our, in our businesses. If there was something that you could tell a younger version of yourself, what would it be that you'd tell yourself? I'd say stay true to what it is that you really enjoy, enjoy doing. So much opportunity out there for whatever it is that you find an interest in in your life. It doesn't have to be shooting, driving, riding motorbikes, none of that. It's just whatever you think is speaks to you at, at, the, at the deepest level and pursue it with everything you've got. 
don't let anyone discourage you. As long as it's a healthy pursuit, obviously, and it's, it's a moral pursuit, then yeah, go for it. Grab it by the horns and just and just run with it. You can make a go of anything in this world. You just got to have the you know the will to do it, get into it, and, and get on with it. And don't let anyone discourage you from doing it. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your time and joining us on this podcast. And looking forward to hearing how the future goes. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks, you. Cheers for this as well. The Mill Gym is based in North Fremantle in Western Australia. Look them up at themillgym.com and on Instagram at themillgym. You can find Nick on Instagram at resilience101. You can find out more about Nick's career and The Mill Gym on a couple of other Aussie podcasts. Search for Nick's episodes on The Warrior You Podcast by Bram Connolly and on The Unforgiving 60 Podcast by Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. And follow this podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLpod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.